All right, Luke 18, verse 9. Let me read for us and we will dive in. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. If you are inclined to mark in your Bible to help you remember, to bring emphasis to different verses, I want to encourage you to put a line under verse 9 and a line under verse 14. Those are the ways in which we are best to understand this parable. Verse 14 shows us the point. Verse 9 gives us the context. And the context is simply this. Immediately, After exhorting people to persist in prayer so they could persevere in faithful obedience, Jesus teaches another parable in order to confront our self-righteousness. You see, he knew that if, in fact, we're going to persist or persevere, we would have to kill self-righteousness within us. And it existed as much among him in that day as it does within us today in our day. And so Jesus contrasts a Pharisee and a tax collector. Friends, don't miss the size of this contrast. It's not small by any means. It's big. You see, the Pharisee was one who was morally honorable among all, and the tax collector was utterly deplorable by the same all. No comparison could have been more offensive to the Pharisees and no comparison could have been more unthinkable to the tax collectors. The Pharisees are trying to catch their breath. The tax collectors are laughing inside, right? I mean, what is he thinking? How could he possibly get anywhere of value in this. The Pharisees were so highly elevated over others in their society that they were pretty much untouchable. And the tax collectors were so despised that they were utterly deplorable. And so in this, everyone agreed, right? But don't miss the impact of verse 10. Because many would not have heard anything else after it because of the obvious point. We already know the foregone conclusion, right? But some just continued to listen because of the absurdity of the contrast What possible value, they asked, could there be in making such a contrast that was already so obvious to everyone around? The Pharisees, they're what we would call professional prayers. They got paid to pray. And what he does is he addresses God, but he focuses on himself. 
And he focuses on himself by justifying his own righteousness by comparison against the unrighteousness of others. And here's what he said. Now, God, you already know this, but let me remind you. I'm not like the extortioners. That guy over there. I'm not like the adulterers. Those who wouldn't even dare come among us. Rather, I'm not even like just the common old run-of-the-mill everyday sinner. I'm not like them, especially this tax collector who dared showed up today. I mean, you see the contrast, I know, God. Instead, look at what I have done for you. And what happened is the Pharisee fills his life with righteous deeds that far surpass his understanding of the law of God. And this prayer positions the Pharisee as the most excellent model of righteousness that couldn't possibly be ignored by God in the giving of his favor. I mean, look how many people had already recognized it. Surely, God, you couldn't ignore it. Friends, my first thought in thinking about the Pharisee's prayer is pretty simple. Thank goodness God doesn't need us to remind him of who it is that gets favor. Because my resume is just not as long as his. This wasn't a prayer that was unique to one Pharisee. Rather, if you look at church history in the first century, it was actually a form of praying that the Pharisees practiced regularly. And that's documented many times over. For they prayed and represented through their prayers what it was that they believed about God and what it was that they believed about other people, ultimately also themselves. You see, nothing reveals what we believe more than the content and the posture with which we offer our prayers. The Pharisees used good deeds to avoid true righteousness. And friends, I'm going to tell you, the Bible says that's a fool's game. That's a fool's game. The Pharisees' prayer was not wrong because of the doctrine about God was incorrect, but it was wrong because he believed that it was his performance that was enough to satisfy God's holy standard. And he dismissed any requirement for how it is that he should regard other people in that law. Here is what pharisaical righteousness means for us then, but also today. It says to God that God is pleased with me because of the way I perform, specifically compared to others. But it holds no regard for its posture of the heart or its consideration of others. You see, friends, pharisaical righteousness puts more importance on etiquette over ethics. The way that we put our best face forward instead of the way that we greet the other faces around us. The tax collector's prayer, though it was different, it's a lot easier to cover. It's a lot shorter, right? Very simple. You don't really have to break it down. It's just bloop and it's done. But it begins this way. He was standing far off. Don't let his posture 
escape our attention either. It represented what everyone in the room thought of him, himself included, and it represented what he believed about his acceptance before God. He dared not even get close to God. And if he couldn't get near God, then surely he shouldn't look towards God and maybe even inflict upon himself some beatings to represent how wrong he had been in the way that he lived. You see, if only uh, his only appeal was the posture that he could presume and in that posture to beg for God's mercy. That's all he could be worthy of to receive. But the tax collectors, friends, in this day and time, they, they weren't even worthy to pray at all. For, for prayer and his prayer here, what was improper in every way conceivable, but this was no surprise to the people. The only surprise was that a tax collector would bother to pray at all. Who would even fathom that such a person could come before God and presume that God would in any way hear his prayer. But what Jesus says is this. It was that man that went home justified. For Jesus commends the tax collector as the one who left justified, as the one who truly met with and experienced God's saving Grace. It's the inconceivable outcome of the foregone conclusion of the setting that he presents. And then Jesus tells us everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, friends, when we trust in the Lord for all of life, we will humble ourselves to rest in his will and in his work without needing to justify ourselves before him. Jesus doesn't command a script for prayer. Let, let's, not, let's not try to impose that on the text either. We do need to learn how to pray. We, we need to grow in our understanding of our praying. You know, the way that we pray and the, even the words that we use and learning to pray the very word of God. So, so we're not dismissing that in any way. We need to listen to our prayers, no matter how long we've been a believer or how mature that we may have come in Christ. Because when we listen to our prayers, we're able to discern where it is that our heart may be deceiving us by our own pride so that we too can repent and humble ourselves. You see, it was the pharisaical posture before the Lord that led David to believe that Bathsheba could be his. Here's how that prayer goes. God, I've done so much for you. I've earned this. I deserve this. I want this. I'll go take this for myself and you'll be okay with it. And that's what David did. But then when Nathan came to him, the prophet of God, and he put his finger in his chest and he said, you, you are the despicable man that you claim you are not. It was the tax collector's prayer that led David in repentance back to the throne of God to receive forgiveness and grace from him. Friends, if I have learned anything about God, it is this, that God responds most quickly to display his power most gloriously to those that see themselves as most destitute and desperate 
thinking that they are the most unsavable. Lest we be quick to celebrate the tax collector, let us be very careful. Jesus is not exalting or elevating swindlers, cheats, and thieves to encourage it. And that's what most tax collectors were known for. Zacchaeus confessed this. He said, I've taken three, four times what I should have taken from people. It's not about celebrating our own sinfulness so that we can give allowance to continue in it in some way. For unrighteousness and wicked behavior is never celebrated nor heralded in the scripture, but it is always recognized to be confessed before God. But if there is anything that we can celebrate, let us celebrate this, that God is most likely to show up in saving power when we're most convinced it could never happen and toward those we would never believe it would happen. Let us be convinced of this, that God can do the undoable in our understanding, that God can accomplish the impossible before us, and that God awaits to do the improbable among us in order to demonstrate his glory through his work. Jesus proclaims the readiness of God to forgive in response to the simplest prayer that's offered from a humble and contrite heart. Tell me today, pastor, I'm horrible at praying. I don't know the first thing about it. Good. You're right where you need to be to receive God's saving grace today. That's what Jesus is teaching us. Our prayers reveal what it is that is really inside of us and they expose so much about who we really are through the very words that we speak. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says in Matthew 12. And it reveals the very beliefs that we hold. Proverbs 27, 19 says, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects the man and our prayers when we listen to the words that we use the content of them serve as the water in which we look to see who we really are and what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about other people and what God wants to do let's look how it is that we approach God to experience his love and saving power. For today, I want you to see that humility shapes the heart to posture our life to receive God's saving grace. And I want you to see this through three glories in this passage, three glories that can shape our heart. You don't have to go be a tax collector to get saved, friends. Sometimes we champion that tax collector too much in our world. Oh, let me go build my testimony And then I'll get saved. And then I'll have something to talk about. No, friends, that's why we pray that little Isaiah and Louise and all the other children in our church would never know a day without the love, the truth, and the grace of God and his mercy in their life. Because there is no testimony that is less in God's eyes and among God's people than a complete salvation that God gives to all that cry to him. And so let us see the three glories that can shape every heart this morning with humility. The first glory is this. It's simply the meaning of humility. And we see it in these verses. It is God's mercy and grace. 
When we rightly understand humility, we'll understand that it is this. It's not thinking less of ourselves. That's how we often want to perceive it because we want to posture ourselves that way. It's not thinking less of ourselves. That's a false humility, but rather it's just simply thinking of ourselves less. One pastor recently said it this way in defining humility. Humility is the ability to see and to accept what it is that God has said about us. We can see it, we just don't often accept it. You see, friends, humility is the posture of the heart that guides the whole of life, our mind, our body, our tongue, into a joyful submission to God's will that is revealed through his word. For humility is the strongest demonstration of the Holy Spirit's leading in the Christian's life. That I am decreasing and Christ in me is increasing. Jesus shows the kind of heart that gets God's response of mercy and grace. And he leads us to consider when it is and where it is that we approach God with the same self-justification of the Pharisee. When we are thinking so highly of ourselves or so much about ourselves, and failing to trust his mercy and his grace alone. You see, we are never justified before God because of our right actions, nor the cumulative effect of them, nor are we so despised by God that we are outside of his reach because of our sinful actions. What a blessing for us to hear that humility postures every life in a place to receive God's mercy and his grace. Friends, humility is the key to unlocking God's kingdom in all of our life. Proverbs 3.34 tells us, to the humble he gives favor. And that word for favor is the biblical word for grace. His unmerited goodness poured out on us through Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There is no incident when anyone ever in any circumstance or situation humbled themselves before God and got rejected by him. Never, not one. God always looks on the humble heart with mercy and grace to meet our every need. Humility is often seen as the big problem though. Man, if I'm humble, how in the world can I be courageous or how can I be confident? But see, humility is actually the very thing that enables our courage because we deny self-confidence for the fact that we will rest in the courage that God brings to us. Not just to do what we want to do, but to do what God has willed for us to do and told us in his word. And that's where the challenge lies. You see, humility is the way that we, as those who are trusting in Jesus, confront the fears that threaten us. Instead of bowing up, we bow down. Because the very fears that threaten us are not just coming against us, but they are creating something within us that makes us want to bow to them. And we say, no, 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 I will not bow to you. I've already bowed to Jesus as Lord and he's conquered you. And so I'll serve him and him alone. Humility is also a false hope that, uh, 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 excuse me, humility also confronts our false hopes that allure us in this life. 
When we see the things of this world that are appealing to us and that we want in this life and we go, man, that seems like it just answers so many of my questions that it would satisfy so many of my accomplishments or desires and the things that I want to see in my life. Humility says, you know what? God's will just doesn't hold a lot of allure for me too often. But because of who he is, I will reject the things that compete with God. And put those things aside and trust that what he has for me is a greater good because it's his ultimate glory in every way. Humility chooses to live by faith in God's power to fulfill his promises and to bring his glory in all things above every other hope of the world. That's the first glory. Humility means we receive God's mercy and grace in our life. The second glory is this. It's the benefit of humility. Jesus said that man, the tax collector, the one who beat his chest and begged for God's mercy because he didn't even think he could get close to God, Jesus said that's the man who went home justified. That word justified, friends, is so critical and they all knew exactly what it meant and we should too. You see, justified is a beautiful word that tells us of the glorious benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the cross of Jesus Christ, when by faith in him, we die with him that we might live with him means this we have been made right with God we've been justified and Jesus says it's the tax collector who went home vindicated before God he was set right with God by having God's righteousness in Jesus Christ set upon him What a contrast. The first eight verses of this chapter tell us that the judge who was self-righteous sitting on his throne could not even respond to justice's demand. In other words, to make things right because he didn't know what to do, but he just did whatever he could do because the irritation of it he wanted removed from his life. But here it tells us this, that when two people come before God, God freely and readily bestows his righteousness upon those who don't even believe that it can happen, but yet in humility submit themselves to God. You see, God, friends, justifies the one who humbles himself before him. Humility makes us right with God, friends, How it is that we approach God determines how it is that God responds to us. It is our posture before God, not our performance for God, that determines our acceptance from God in order to receive his mercy and his grace. See, some of you walked in today thinking, I don't think I've done enough for God to want me here today, but I'm going to see if I can sneak in and sneak out. And I want you to know you haven't done enough for you to be worthy to be here, but there wasn't anything you could do to be here and to know that God wants you here. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's exactly what this story is telling us. It's our posture before God, not our performance for God, that says God is waiting to welcome you and to love you with a life-changing love. Trusting God humbly is central to all of life with God in his kingdom. Because God opposes the proud. Why? Because they have no need of him. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners to repentance. 
Why? Because the righteous don't know that they even need God. The one who exalts himself will be measured and will be found wanting. That's what Jesus means in verse 14 when he says, everyone who exalts himself, look what I have done, God. God will say, look what I demand. And you know what? The weight of God's demand always crushes the accomplishment of man's doing. But he says, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God, I'm not worthy to even be here, so I'm going to hang out on the fringes. God said, no, 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 I've heard you out there. Please come and receive the full pouring out of my love and my mercy and my grace. Jesus invites us to humble ourselves, to trust in his finished work on the cross, and to receive God's mercy and grace. Friends, that's the gospel. Humility makes us right with God, but humility also in this second benefit uh, makes us right with ourselves. When we are right with God, we can be right with ourselves. Friend, the heart that is exalted toward God has no need for God's work because it is justified in its own work, but it never brings peace or comfort or rest in the midst of that work. The Pharisee displayed all the right activity, but his prayer was insufficient. The tax collector didn't even offer any of his, of his activity because he knew it wasn't enough. He just simply pleaded for mercy. And the one who came to prayers believing he held salvation was the one that missed it. And the one who believed he was completely unworthy of it is the one that walked away with it. This is not the way the story is supposed to go. And Jesus says, but this is the way the story goes with God. This is the way it goes with God. Faithful prayers are never absent of the reality of our outward moral actions, friends but they never rest on those actions. To put an argument before God for why we are acceptable to him. In Christ, we are set at peace within because we are set upon us the peace of Christ that is his righteousness. Peace only sits in the heart when we have been set at peace with God through Jesus. Awareness of our sin does not put us out of favor with God either. You see, as a Christian, it's not that you cease to be aware of your sin. Actually, you become much more acutely attuned to it. And you begin to study it and defeat it and attack it at a much deeper level where it roots itself in the heart. Those most aware of their own sin are best ready to receive God's forgiveness. Those who are okay with their own righteousness have no need for God to do anything even though they may speak much of him and long of him. And this parable shows us that no one gets to God on their own merit, but it also shows us that no one gets so far from God because of their sinful that they, sinfulness that they can't be reached by God. No one gets status with God because of self-reliance and self-righteousness, but no one is too far gone for God to not be able to reach them. And to hear their prayers for mercy. Humility cuts a direct route to God. It is the shortest distance between wherever you are today and where God is waiting to welcome you home. Humility, though, not only makes us right with God, not only makes us right with ourselves, humility makes us right with others. Watch this. We've been made right with God 
because our sinfulness has been atoned for in Jesus Christ. Our lives have been justified. And friends, there is nothing, N-O-T-H-I-N-G, no thing, that cannot be overcome to bring peace between two people because of the gospel. You see, that's where pastoral ministry begins. And we have to run it back to the cross. And then we run it right back out from the cross. Some of you are here today and you're thinking this. I could never be right with this person because of what they did to me. My marriage will never be right because of what they've committed against me. This friendship will never be made right because of how I've been offended or how I have offended. This situation could not be made right because even it's been rendered for them not to be able to redo or undo what has been done. You see, somehow we separate the reality of this world from the ultimate reality of God. And what God tells us through the gospel of Jesus Christ is there is no situation, there is no circumstance, there's no relationship, there's nothing on this earth that cannot be made right because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Does that mean that every detail moving forward is undone or undoes the wrong that's been made. No, actually, often what happens is God redeems that. You see, that's why some of you as Christians have been through some of the most life-wrecking situations in your life. And it's not that when you got saved, God removed all that and acted like it never happened. God redeems that for a testimony that shows the power of his love and his glory when it's foretold to other people. Some of you, believed what God could do for your life because of what you heard he had done in another's life. I'm telling you, there is nothing that cannot be fully redeemed. God doesn't have to undo it to make it right, right? I can tell you of times I've been offended, I've been wronged, and God didn't undo any of the past, he just redeemed it. And instead of it being a big wad of sour venom that comes out of my mouth, it's a precious testimony to his power of what he did to change me and to change others through that. Christians are called to be peacemakers by doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God. And when we live this way, we live as we've been redeemed, to live right with others. And Jesus is the only one who makes peace on earth among men possible. That's why Peter tells us, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Friends, listen. If in the way you are relating to other people, you are in some way disconnecting that from your own relationship with God so that you can justify being proud and not humble in that situation and you believe that you're going to be vindicated in that situation through that, I'm telling you, you'll be crushed by that situation. Because you're not allowing the gospel and its implications to be applied to the reality of your situation. God wants to redeem that in you. And if that other person is gone, maybe you had a horrible relationship with your parents and your father, your mother, they're gone. They're dead. They're gone. You can never speak to them again. I'm telling you, God can still redeem it. Because what he wants to do is in you. Do you hear me? 
And being redeemed in the eternal is more important than just being right in the here and now. Stop holding on to it. That's pride. It's going to crush you. Humble yourselves and let the Lord lift you up. Humility is how we walk with God and how we relate to one another because of Jesus. The third glory, I got to be quick. The third glory is the growth of humility, and that's transformation. Let me move quickly so we can finish. We only grow in humility by intentional, disciplined surrender and practice. I'm going to prove it to you. Are you ready? Watch me right here. I'm very humble. No one believes that, right? And if you have someone say that to you, that's actually the person you avoid at all costs at every turn. Like you turn in the grocery store and hit a different aisle because of that, right? Why? Because you know the opposite is true. It only happens by intentional discipline, surrender, and practice. Can you just do this, God, so I don't have to get engaged? No one grows humble by chance or happenstance. But Jesus shows us how. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God. In other words, that just simply means he was God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, Paul writes. You know what that means? It means that he could have played the get-out-of-jail-free card. But he didn't. Rather, it says, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of every divine right to opt out of the will of God. And he chose because there was nothing in him any longer that would compete or that would oppose God's will. He chose to humble himself and submit to God's will to become a man and as a man to humble himself even to death on a cross. You see, that's the intentional discipline surrender that we must practice every day. We must empty our lives of anything that competes, threatens, or opposes God's word and will in us. And once we've emptied ourselves, then we can humble ourselves to the will of God, what he's saying to us, what he's teaching us, how he's leading us, what he's telling us to get out of and get into. But listen, friends, you'll never humble yourself until first you've emptied yourself. Some of you are trying to humble yourself to the will of God before you've emptied yourself. And the problem is you keep failing because you've got competing priorities. You've got competing affections and adorations warring in you. And you just will not go where you know God is leading you to go because you've not laid down the very things that you've got to empty your life of first. What is it today? But the Spirit of God is telling you, you've got to let go of this. You've got to lay this down. Because it's competing with my will for you. It's opposing what I want to do in you. Is it anger, frustration, lack of forgiveness towards another person? Is it a, a pleasure? 
gratification, a satisfaction that you've taken hold of in your life. And, and you say, God, I don't think I can be happy without this. God says, I'll bring a joy into your life that you'll forget all about the happiness of this world. But not until you empty your life of it. And when you release it, then you're ready then to humble yourself and to walk in the way that God is calling you to walk. Because when we humble ourselves to walk with God, he lifts us up. Where is God calling you today to humble your life, to follow him? Humility, friends. Humility shapes the heart to posture our life to receive God's saving grace. Let's pray.